episode number 60, Jack Zipes, fairy tales are still relevant to the children of today. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. I am Brother Wolf, and I am so thrilled that you have found your way here. I'm sure, if you're a regular listener, you've heard me say that a number of times. But I'm telling you, I really mean it tonight. (laughs) I'm so excited, because tonight, I have on the call with me someone, well, let me put it this way. If there was someone who had gone so far into the fairy tale world that he had come back and he was an ambassador of the fairy tale world. He was like somebody who went out into these foreign lands and he found the lost fairy tales and then he escorted them back here to us so we could meet them. That would be my guest, Jack Zipes. Jack Zipes, when I could just list you all the books and we would be here for quite a long time. But, but instead, what I want to, and we'll come to the books through the interview, but... But instead, what I just want to tell you is, is I remember being a storyteller in my 20s, and I went out to the Bank Street um, College Bookstore. And I was in the college bookstore, and I was going through these books, and some of them looked quite boring about storytelling, and, oh, God, I don't want this book. And, and I understand that those of you who know me know that I'm a dys- dyslexic storyteller. So I'm just like, oh, uh, big tomes, you know. Uh, but I, I want to know more about stories. And then I happened upon this beautiful little book, an orange book with an orange binder and a, and a beautiful cover. And, and it said on the cover, it said, Don't Bet on the Prince. And I took that book, and I, I have it still. And let me tell you, that, that copy, um, I think it's 16 years later, that copy is dog-eared. That copy is, is dog-eared and beat up, and I still have it. It's one of my most valuable books in my collection because that book taught me more about how stories can serve those who, who may not have the power in the moment than just about any other contact I had with other books. It, it just made me really think about what stories can I create that can serve those who are voiceless. And, and I can think of no other way of introducing my guest, but, but saying he is a servant of the stories that serve the voiceless. Jack, thank you for so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much, Eric. So, Jack, do you have a story you'd like to share with us tonight? Yeah, I have a story that my good friend Larry Johnson, who later on will be joining the show, has heard. Uh, and it's a story I've been telling, actually, quite a bit in the last year or two uh, for good reason, uh, because of the fact that uh, even though it was written by a Danish uh, storyteller uh, of uh, fables and animal tales and fairy tales, uh, and he, he wrote this tale sometime at the end of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century, 
it has a lot to do uh, with our times, and so I'll tell it. And uh, it's not a fairy tale. Once upon our time, once upon our time, truth suddenly vanished from the globe. When people soon realized what happened, they were greatly distressed, and they immediately sent five wise men in search of truth. One went in this direction and the other in that, and all of them were fully equipped with traveling expenses and good intentions for ten long years. They searched all over the globe, and when they finally began returning to the people and saw each other from a distance, they waved their hats. Each one shouted that he had found truth. The first stepped forward and declared truth to be science. He was not able to finish his report, however, because one of the other wise men pushed him aside and accused him of lying. Instead, he proclaimed truth to be religion and that he had found it. The man of science became furious and while he began arguing with the man of religion, a third wise man announced in beautiful words that love was clearly truth. But he was contradicted by the fourth man who stated quite curtly that he had truth in his pocket, that it was gold and that all the rest was childish nonsense. Finally, the fifth wise man arrived. However, he had trouble standing on his legs. With a gurgling laugh, he confessed that truth was wine. He had found truth in wine. After looking everywhere, the five wise men couldn't come to an agreement. They began fighting mercilessly and battered each other so brutally that it was horrible to see. The man of science had his head broken, while the man of love was covered with so much dirt that he had to change his clothes before he could show himself in respectable society. The man of gold was so thoroughly stripped of all his glitter and coating that people realized he was worthless. And when the man of wine's bottle broke, the wine flowed away into the mud. But the man of religion came off worst of all. Everybody took a whack at him and belittled him so that he became the laughingstock of all the spectators and almost lost his faith. Soon the people took sides, some with this one, some with that, and they shouted so loudly and be began pushing each other so strongly that they could neither see nor hear because of the noise. Meanwhile, some of the people sat down and mourned because they thought that truth had been torn to pieces and would never be made whole again. Now, as they sat there, a little girl came running up and said that she had found truth. It was not far from where they were sitting, she said, and she asked them to come with her. Truth was sitting in the midst of the world in a green meadow. Slowly, the people stopped fighting, for the little girl looked so very sweet, and they wanted to believe her. First one person went with her, then another, and evermore. At last, when they were all in the meadow, they discovered a figure the likes of which they had never seen before. It was impossible to determine whether it was a man or woman, an adult or a child. Its forehead was pure as that of one who knows no sin, its eyes deep and serious as though as those of one was read into the hearts of all human beings. Its mouth opened with the brightest smile and then quivered with a great sadness impossible to describe. Its hand was soft as a mother's and strong as the hand of a worker. Its foot trod the earth firmly, yet crushed not a flower. 
most fascinating of all, the figure had large, soft wings like the birds that fly at night. Now as the people stood there and stared, the figure drew itself erect and cried in a voice that sounded like bells ringing. I am truth. It's a fairy tale, said the man of science. Yes, a fairy tale. The men of religion, love, science, gold and wine, convinced in their opinions the five wise men and their followers stormed away. They resumed their fighting until the world was shaken to its center. But a few old and weary men, women, and a few young men and women with ardent and eager souls and thousands of children with great wide eyes. All these people remained in the meadow where the fairy tale has continued to exist even up to our very day. Beautiful. That's Derek. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think it resonates with what's going on in Say the author again. His name uh, is Carl Ewald, E-W-A-L-D, and he came after Hans Christian Andersen, and he was somewhat of a naturalist, and uh, a journal. he was a journalist. His father was a famous uh, novelist uh, uh, in the 19th century, Johann Ewald, and um, uh, <clears throat> some of his books were translated into English, but mainly in German, almost all of... Uh, Carl Leibold's stories and tales were translated at the beginning of the 20th century into German, English, and some other languages. And this this one actually appeared after World War One, after his death, and appeared in a um, a book in German uh, uh, that was dedicated to children and with many different entries by writers who were socialists, communists, free thinkers, and so on. They, it was a book that was uh, intended to try to uh, stimulate a new type of fairy tale. So, I, this is sort of um, this is sort of a group of people who, our audience included here, our, li- our live listeners included, and our future listeners included. We we are already all convinced of this question, but I want to ask it because I think it's really important to just cover the basics. Right. Because sometimes we encounter people in our lives who don't take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And and so the question comes to mind for me is, is our fairy tales still relevant? Well, <laughs> I, I think the evidence is, is all around us. Uh, I don't know of any genre, any kind of genre, uh, that is so prevalent and so widespread and so significant and and also made trivial at times or many times uh, than the, the fairy tale. The fairy tale in all its forms, whether it's uh, a story, a story that's told, a story that's printed, a story that is uh, televised, made into a film, an opera, uh, so on and so forth, and even just uh, the borrowings, the derivatives, like even Soap opera <laughs> is a type of fairy tale, uh, but that's what I would almost call a trivialized, trivialized type of fairy tale. But uh, fairy tales are so almost ingrained in us. Uh, it, it's a, it would seem as though fairy tales are 
second nature. And I've I've tried in a recent book, in my my most recent book called Why Fairy Tales Stick, I've tried to use um, the sciences, biology and zoology and ethnology and so on, to try to investigate, to explore the possibility that um, fairy tales, or, or not just fairy tales, are what we would call memes, M-E-M-E-S. Uh, it's a concept taken from the great Richard Dawkins, a, um, a British biology who wrote an important book. He's written many books, but one of his most important books is called The Selfish Gene, in which he proposes that not only uh, do we are we determined in part by our genes, but that we also have in our brain means that we uh, disseminate actually through um, through our brains, through language, uh, whether it's written or oral, and uh, that uh, there are certain tales uh, that become mimetic. That is, they, they have such a power over us that they actually latch onto our brains and into our memories and uh, that these tales have a great deal to do with certain very basic natural desires that are related to the human species, to our the, the way we instinctually um, um, live. And so I've, I've, I've tried to uh, investigate that uh, that concept and, and to try to show uh, to a great extent that uh, fairy tales are almost a part of us and that they help us adapt to our different environments. So you're talking about crossing the line between culture and biology. I'm trying to actually bring them together and uh, that the this argument that it's either nurture or nature is a ridiculous argument. It's both. And I'm trying to uh, explore, you know, how... Uh, science might enable us, people who are in the humanities, I'm, I'm in the humanities, and I'm sure you are, more more so sort of influenced by cultural uh, problems or cultural theories. Uh, but I'm trying to uh, provide a uh, an explanation for just the question that you, you raised. Uh, are fairy tales still relevant? Uh, can they help us? And I think that they help us day in, day out. It's just this idea. What, I, what I'm hearing in the background here is this idea of how stories can be used to control outrageous culture or outrageous actions with, within culture. Mm-hmm. And that stories can be a way of, of speaking about great truths without actually having to talk about them <laughs> in a way that upsets people. You right. know. <laughs> And I'm just interested in, in that, you know, I mean, how, I mean, I know you could talk a long time about this, but fairy tales, are they still useful as a way to to shift culture? I mean, if if I create a fairy tale that, that gets picked up and becomes the next cat in the hat or whatever, really works its way into our culture, is representing values that I think are important, the culture should learn, am I fooling myself? You know, or is this really something potential? Is there real potential here? Well, you know I, mean? I think you hit the nail on the head uh, early, and and also in, with your last statement, that metaphors, uh, metaphors and symbols, uh, really are extremely important. We we 
to a great extent through language, whether spoken language or written language, we use, we need metaphors and symbols uh, in order for us to gain the distance from problems that are so close to us and so frightening and or perhaps even uh, so joyful uh, that uh, we need some way to articulate to sort of get them under control or not necessarily under control but to articulate them in a way that we can grasp uh, what is going on around us. And so I think that uh, the uh, language that... uh, fairy tales use uh, and enable us uh, really to get that distance, but at the same time, I think that it enables us, these these tales really uh, deal with very basic problems like, uh, or and, and some of the problems are, are very, are very thorny, uh, such as jealousy, sibling jealousy, uh, psychological problems, and social problems. Sibling jealousy, uh, I, I've, I've talked about Red Riding Hood and rape, that it's a tale about rape that helps us understand violation and and rape, uh, or childhood abandonment in Hansel and Gretel, and many, many other uh, fairy tales, not just Hansel and Gretel, that deal with child abandonment or abuse or the sending children off to earn their living uh, independently, uh, tests and so on. So fairy tales deal with with urgent problems, problems that we haven't resolved uh, satisfactorily uh, in what I call the civilizing process. Every uh, culture, every society has its own civilizing process, but most civilizing processes uh, are lacking uh, in... in, uh, resolving uh, a lot of these uh, difficult problems because of the fact that uh, we have not really developed uh, processes that are just or fair or equitable so that uh, people's basic needs can be met and so that we can move on toward a type of utopia, what what Ansbach calls a uh, social uh, utopia that we glimpse in these stories, that we glimpse in many stories, not just fairy tales. And uh, they have a type of anticipatory illumination, that is, they they shine ahead a possible way that we can move toward resolving these problems. And he points in many of his tales that, uh, in, in many of his theories about the fairy tale, that one of the great things about uh, a good many fairy tales is that they deal with the marginalized, the the rejected uh, daughter or son, the uh, person who is the little person who somehow, through cunning, through um, intelligence, uh, through the help of other people quite often, uh, that person, the protagonist, manages in the fairy tales to find a way to rise and to become master of his or her own destiny. And so I think that that uh, the best of fairy tales have this really um, great essential, uh, utopian essence and uh, that we have to try to, I think, uh, take fairy tales more seriously and look at them more carefully Otherwise, they can be very, uh, trivialized, like, uh, as I, I quite often point to Walt Disney, but he's not the main uh, villain with regard to the trivialization of fairy tales. I'm Sid Lieberman, and you're listening to the 
Art of Storytelling with Children. One of the things I hear in in the fairy tale, I mean, in talking with you about it right now, I, I realize that some of the older fairy tales are a way of adults having the conversation about the ideas and the kids also being able to be there and take part in that conversation, in that the fairy tale can have this deep underlying meaning that teenagers and kids and adults all find satisfying, and it goes right over the kids' heads. Mm -hmm. You're making a really excellent point, because uh, we generally tend to think, let us say in the 20th century um, in particular, that fairy tales are the child's domain, that that, uh, fairy tales are for children, or they're childish, and they're fun, but they're not, the, the meanings are not uh, essentially very profound. But the fact is that uh, fairy tales uh, and in the oral tradition uh, were never for children. They were not told for children. They were not created by children. They were created by adults. And children were never, let us say, uh, separated uh, from their families. They heard these tales And so they knew these tales uh, extremely well by the time they grew up. And and we also have to bear in mind that life expectancy was not (laughs) very great uh, going back a few thousand years or even two or three hundred years. And so that most of the tales uh, that were told were told for adults and were told uh, told by adults for adults or for young, uh, not for young people necessarily, but to share with people in the community, including the children, uh, uh, what obstacles or hindrances there were uh, that uh, they would have to overcome. And so that fairy tales, uh, the the original folk tales, were very communal, and they had to deal with a great, with the, the, uh, let us say, difficulties that all people uh, were going to encounter in, uh, in in their society, whether it was a hunter society or a grazing society and so on and so forth. So that uh, fairy tales, even today, but and, and that tradition, by the way, has continued up through today because when fairy tales were first written, they weren't written for children. They were, written, again, written for adults. Children could not read, and it took a long time. It wasn't until the end of the 19th century, or beginning of the 20th century, that the majority of people could read or and, and sometimes could barely read. They could read functionally. And also with the rise of the film, uh, the first fairy tale films up through the 1930s, were for adults primarily. And even today, uh, the the fairy tale uh, speaks to uh, uh, both children and to adults. And you're absolutely right when you're saying that on some levels, uh, fairy tales, uh, no matter what form they take, cannot be fully understood by children. And uh, But they remain with the children because they touch a nerve. They touch, as I said before, mimetically. They touch some basic instinct, and uh, they record these tales in some form in their memories, and they can, it's sort of like if they can be instant replay, if uh, the something happens uh, that draws the attention of a person uh, to 
a problem and they think of a fairy tale that might enable them to deal with a particular problem. That's, by the way, one of the reasons why many, many uh, psychologists, therapists, and psychoanalysts uh, use fairy tales in their in, in their therapy because, to a great extent, they can uh, these tales do speak to very deep psychological or uh, problems. They also deal with social problems because you can't separate the psychological from the social. So it's kind of like they they are a, a door with a hidden key, and <laughs> as as the child grows up, they find the key. Uh, that's you know. a great metaphor. <laughs> but let me, I, I want to go on because I feel like there's so much I want to talk to you about and there's so many different directions we can go in. There's a couple things I just promised myself. Um, you wrote a book, which title I'm dropping right now, Enchantments. Uh, what's right. the full title? Spells of Enchantments. Spells of Enchantments, which if you're a storyteller and you don't own this book, required reading. Go out, get on Amazon, buy it. <laughs> and it is... It is the most amazing collection of fairy tales. First of all, because it's not just from one era; it's from a continuous era. You know, it goes way back and all the way to present day. Right. Uh, and well, I'm just curious about this. In in collecting this book, would, did you use mostly English sources? Were there a lot of mixed sources from overseas? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm been very fortunate in in that I speak about four different languages and read a few others, and so that uh, I literally translated many of the tales that are in that book. And my research tends to be um, very international, so that uh, I drew on original you know, tales in, in the original language, and uh, I was able to translate those tales. Sometimes, if there was a good translation, I used that translation. No need to do extra work. But for the most part, um, I... I, uh, these tales are from mainly from Western Europe, or some some also from other other areas of the world, but uh, from the most, most part Western Europe and North America. And now I also understand you're doing work right now with storytelling and community in Minneapolis. Can yes. you talk about that work? And but yeah. before you before you talk about that, actually, um, how I just I'm, I. I don't want to show you with the audience. I know there's so many good people on the call. There's so many good questions for you also. Storytelling clearly to me is central to building community. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly a symptom of our current fractured society that storytelling is so undervalued and unrecognized. I, I mean oral storytelling, as in storyteller to listener face-to-face communication. And I, I wonder, in terms of building community, do you think that just by inserting, the, as you're doing in Minneapolis, inserting the telling of our own stories, that that creates a sense of community itself? Or No, no, no. I, I think you have to really have a, a well-thought-out program in order to make your stories effective or do effective storytelling in terms of community or, or, or society. Um, I've been independently, many, many years ago, about 30, 40 years ago, um, in order to test my own theories about uh, fairy tales and to question Bruno Bettelheim, whose theories I question very critically, um, I decided that I should learn something about storytelling, As and I became an autodidact and began going into schools uh, 
not just on a one-time basis, but I would hook up with a teacher and then spend the entire academic year going in once a week and learning myself from the from the children, from the teacher, uh, how or why storyteller, sto- storytelling in all types of genres could be effective. And when I came to Minneapolis in 1990, I began uh, doing storytelling again in different schools. I hooked up with, uh, thanks to a good friend of mine, Herb Cole, who's a very progressive educator, and who had done a lot of work here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, he put me in touch with a few uh, different uh, teachers uh, who invited me into this school, and I continued uh, uh, telling uh, tales and developing a program. And um, I also met Larry Johnson, who uh, is on the phone, I hope, still, and uh, he was really great and introduced me to a school in which he was uh, the media teacher, and I did some, I think for two years I worked in the school that he was working. And then finally, in, uh, and I published a book about my work uh, called Creative Storytelling about 1994. About 1996 or so, uh, Peter Brosius came to um, Minneapolis and as the artistic director of the Children's Theater Company, and I won't make this into a, a long story, but... Uh, through a, a major grant that uh, I received from George Soros and support from Peter Brosius, I began a um, program called Neighborhood Bridges in about 1997 or 1998, in which the for, for two hours a week, uh, storytellers, actually actors, mainly actors whom, whom I've trained, would go in two hours a week and use storytelling, creative drama, uh, writing uh, games, drawing games, acting games, in order to try to enable children to become storytellers of their own lives. That's the basic philosophy of the program, is not for us to celebrate the people who are coming in as teaching orders to celebrate our storytelling capabilities, but how can we stimulate and animate children so that they can really narrate and navigate their way through the world because of all the messages that are bombarding them day in, day out. How can they shift through, learn what is a lie, what's truth, or or at least look at the world in a critical and creative way. And so that program began in two schools, in elementary schools in Minneapolis, and now is spread to about 12 schools in uh, Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul. There are about 15 or so teaching artists and 15 wonderful teachers and principals and so on. There, uh, it's become it's in a whole year program. It's not us going in just sort of performing, but to try to uh, to somehow bring about a type of community in the classroom in the school with parents. Uh, there, there are all types of programs that uh, we've developed that, that involve the community. And uh, there's a final um, type of uh, get-together at the Children's Theater at the end of the year where the different schools come together at the Children's Theater and perform plays that they've developed through storytelling and creative drama. And so that is what keeps me going. And as I mentioned to you before, when you talked about my retiring from the university and I mentioned 
that I would prefer not to have anything to do with the, the university people anymore, but I'm looking forward to becoming more involved in this program that I developed and uh, am still a part of. Is this an example of the sort of thing that we should be doing more of in the storytelling movement? Definitely. I, I think there are uh, wonderful people out there uh, uh, who, are, who have developed their own programs, but I think more and more of this uh, should be done. And, and it can be done not just in the schools, but and there, there, we know, you know many of, uh, of us good storytellers are doing work in prisons, in old-age homes, in hospitals, and so on. So there, there's a wide variety of work that is being done by storytellers. I think, though, personally, I think schools are the most important, and the reason I say that is because that's our future. Uh, the, these children are being really um, exploited and maltreated and badly educated in America, and uh, not because of the teachers, but because of the lack of support by communities and by the government. And I'm speaking largely of the federal government, but state and city governments are also pretty uh, terrible as well. I think we need more and more programs uh, in schools that involve storytelling and the arts. Can't say that enough on this show. <laughs> okay, so, I don't hear any any critics out there. No, we actually did a whole show here. Um, there's a website that exists on storytelling in schools, and uh-huh. it actually lists all the peer-reviewed studies that yes, demonstrate yes. that storytelling in schools is beneficial to the test scores and everything else. So it's it's within the system convincing people that storytelling is beneficial for students. I'm going to give my my audience a warning. I'm going to in a moment I'm going to open up the call for you guys to ask a question and actually I'm going to ask Kevin Cordy if he's still here to be the first question. But before I go to Kevin, what's next, Jack? For me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so you've written all these books. Yes. You know, I mean, it's amazing the list. Uh-huh. Uh you've you, I mean, you're one of the 10,000 people who actually have their own Wikipedia entry, <laughs> like extensive, not just like a little stub, you know, like uh-huh. And your focus is on this project, Minneapolis. What else? Are you still working on the thing in um, Sicily? Uh, it, that's done. Uh, that the, the two volumes of uh, Sicilian folktales will come out uh, in August, and and I have a, another book that I just finished for Princeton. It's a collection of really amazing fairy tales by uh, Kurt Schwitters, the German Dadaist of the 1920s who was a performance artist as well and uh, absolutely uh, uh, creative and startling, provocative, controversial, and I translated his tales. So those two projects are done and are in the process of they're they're in in production. I just uh, am now going to really focus on a new program that I'm developing within Neighborhood Bridges. I want to put in a second year. In other words, to have any class that takes Bridges for one year, they would move on to a second year in which we would um, raise the bar, so to speak, and, uh, and try to really provide them even with more skills and more autonomy so that they can, uh, so, so that what we bring about 
really uh, takes root. And so that's going to be this coming year what I'm going to be working on is an entirely new second year part to the uh, program that, that I've developed with Neighborhood Bridges. I've been applying the um, the Doug Lippman method of coaching in schools. Mm-hmm. Like I'll go into a classroom for the week or a school for a two-week period. I mean, it's still very short. Getting the kids to coach each other is my focus. So oh, that's excellent. Right. right. And it's amazing how quickly they learn how to give positive feedback to each other in a way that doesn't tear down. And, and it's amazing how quickly the tone of the listening in the classroom changes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, which is a thing for me. Uh, Let's go. Kevin, you on the call? I am on the call. All right. So what's your question? Jack, it's uh, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I I appreciate most of your work. I haven't read everything, so I can't say everything. Um, But uh, what you're talking about uh, in speaking out and the work that you're doing within schools um, I've had the good fortune of actually uh, my full curriculum for 11 years was to teach storytelling as um, one of the first full-time high school storytelling teachers in the country. And uh, so I know the joy of working a longer period of time. And you've talked about the need for storytellers to um, spend longer time in the classroom and in connection with the teachers. Uh, how do we make that a reality? How can we... Uh, how can we convince, it doesn't take much to convince the teachers, but how do we can convince the country? Right. Yeah, it, 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 that's a real thorny problem. Um, most principals are, as you know, most class, class time periods are about 45 minutes or so. And for us to ask for two hours, we ask for two hours, uh, the principals become either enraged or puzzled or uh it's a matter of perseverance it's a matter of uh demonstrating doing a workshop you know for uh the principal involved and the teachers who might uh, as you say uh Kevin the teachers really want us uh they want us to come in and they want, would like to work with us and so on so it's a question of using some some strategies to convince a superintendent or or a principal uh, to bring you in, to allow you uh, maybe uh, a month's trial or two months' trial or something like that. Depending on the city, depending on where where one's living, you can use many different strategies. I must say, you know, that I've been very fortunate. We had the backing. Uh, We had money. I had the backing of the Children's Theatre Company. And if you work through some type of institution that's outside of the school system and but is respected by the school system, you can get the door open. And so I, I would say that there are many different types of strategies. It would de- depend on the locale, but the ma- major thing that you have to have is perseverance, trying to get the support of, of a good teacher or, or group of teachers, and then trying to convince uh, I would say at the beginning you might have to work for nothing, uh, which I, I've done most of my life is is uh, uh, is because I'm fortunate and I had my own salary. Uh, sometimes you have to do that. Eventually, you know, you can uh, ask for a, a fair fee, but I think you have to try to get your foot in the door. And 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 sometimes one of the easiest ways for the school systems that have no money would be to say, okay, um, I'll I'll go in for nothing for several months. 
Just one quick follow-up. Uh, one thing that I've noticed is that I'm now co-creating and performing with 20 to 30 students together. I think um, uh, separating the distance between teller and the student watching and the student actively performed, mediated with an adult, really, really makes a difference in in the students' learning. Have, have you experimented with that? And, and if so, how how did it work out? Yes. A hundred. I agree with you. A hundred, hundred and ten percent. The uh, we do that uh, also at uh, neighborhood bridges. That uh, we uh, we try to get peer learning, uh, and we also become involved in uh, in the work that uh, that the uh, students are doing. I mentioned before that I'm going to try to raise the bar and to move uh, the program to. Another level, uh, second uh, uh, second year onto it, and we'll probably do much more of that type of of uh, um, collaborative work that 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 you just uh, mentioned. Thank you, Jack. <clears throat> I appreciate it very much. Uh, everything you. that you do, and I won't hog the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was Kevin Cordy, who was on show number ten of the Outer Storytelling with Children: Children Telling Stories, Giving Children a Voice, uh, which is available right now on the website at storytellingwithchildren.com. This is Joe Bruchak, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. And if anyone else would like to speak, uh, you're welcome to say your name and your website. Hi, this is Elaine Wynn. Hello, Jack. Hi, Elaine. How are you? (laughs) I'm very well, thank you. Did you knock Larry uh, off the line? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Did you want to hear from him first? No, no, no. Oh. Just, just joking. Just joking. Oh, okay. No, he's in another room on the same phone. And okay. But I was actually really delighted. This is like true confessions, but to hear you talk about soap operas, because I have this dream that I would like to go and write for two months or three months on a soap opera. I There's this one, I, because you saw it as a fairy tale. And that's how I have, for a very long time, thought about it. I heard about this one in Chile where um, the women were, uh, well, there was a character in the soap opera who had a sewing machine, and she became a clothes designer because she had this sewing machine. And it it awakened this huge interest in sewing machines, and all kinds of people got sewing machines and decided, you know, were able to make their own clothes. Mm-hmm. and and clothes for families and i i just think that there's a lot of things happening in modern soap operas that like there's one right now that's doing greening of the town and of people and i just wondered if you'd say a little more about that i didn't know you thought about that oh oh yeah i i think also if you look at all the commercials on uh tv they're all fairy tales. Uh, they, they, yeah. If you take a drink, Coca-Cola or, or Gatorade, uh, you will become a home run. <laughs> it's like it's a magic potion. Or if you wear a, or you shave with a certain uh, shaving cream, you'll have a woman. From you'll go from a beast to a handsome man. Uh, if you wear. Um, for instance, uh, Nikes or Adidas, uh, uh, there'll be like seven league boots. And, of course, you just mentioned, of course, uh, um, Rumpelstiltskin. Uh, 
the whole question of uh, knowing how to weave. If you know how to weave and you're industrious, uh, you will eventually uh, win your prints and uh, uh, show that you you have the type of uh, diligence in industry, and of course you have to be somewhat beautiful to uh, win the print. There have been some studies, but not exhaustive studies about uh, commercials, about uh, soap operas, but there's no doubt. As I said, we, we tend to metaphorically, I think, live our lives almost commensurately with uh, with fairy tales, with the fairy tale structures and, 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 and many of the themes. And that is because, I think, fairy tales, and not just fairy tales, but legends and myths and so on, really deal with very deep, profound, basic human problems. Yeah. I, I'll ask another question later if there's time. Thanks, Jack. Okay, great. This is Larry Johnson. Well, first of all, when, when Jack mentioned working with me in my school at the beginning, uh, you said uh, that I was a media teacher. Uh, I actually was, uh, I, I suppose it's like adjunct media, but I got myself into a title of storytelling video, video teacher and working in the same space as the media person. You know, I was, I was teaching uh, children in the school as a specialist to tell stories and to make video and to have some critical thinking skills for all the media that they watch. Uh, but I'm aware, and I, I may, maybe you did uh, say this overtly, Jack, but I'm aware uh, what you're really doing when you go into the school as uh, uh, Neighborhood Bridges is really working not only with the students, but with the teacher in the classroom and the ideas for the teacher to learn how to be a storyteller uh, as well, and to continue to use this when the Bridges people are gone. And that's really what I was after inside the district. I mean, I got into the school district trying to make that kind of thing happen where we were teaching a teacher in each school to be kind of like a catalyst storyteller uh, and, and to start using it with whatever's going on in their curriculum and then to get other people interested. And for various reasons, uh, bureaucratic and then the disintegration of things that started with the budget cuts, it never quite turned out that way. But I think that is critical, and I did hear you say that over and over again, to the future of education. I think the question or the comment is, and I, I'm glad to hear Kevin. I, I've not met Kevin in person, but I, I've seen, uh, you know, things written about uh, what, what you're doing. Um, I haven't been very active for the last number of years in the National Storytelling Organization. We were before, uh, but I, I know when we were there, there was a kind of pervading idea that if you were a teacher storyteller, you were a storyteller who hadn't quite made it yet. And I think that idea is is destructive to the idea of really making this sort of thing happen. And I'm just wondering, you know, if you might comment on that or anybody else might want to say something about that. I hope that that, that has diminished, but I don't know what it's like now, that kind of support from the national group. That's a good point, Larry. Uh, one of the, over the last 10 years of, of developing neighborhood bridges, there's been much more of an emphasis on collaborating with the teacher and and who quite often teaches us many skills, but at the same time, a lot of the teachers who are actually amazingly talented are somewhat shy at the beginning and don't realize uh, what great 
talents they have as storytellers. So one of the purposes of the program, uh, obviously, is to make ourselves dispensable, not indispensable, but dispensable. That is to pass on what we have to offer to the students, to the teachers, to the school, and then to try to move on to another school or another class and so on. As for the uh, sort of um, negative or condescending or critical uh, sort of judgment that other storytellers may have of teachers who are trying to do storytelling in schools. I'm not too familiar with that, uh, but I would say it would be a shame, and uh, I'm, I haven't encountered that, so I'm, I'm hoping maybe that's disappeared. I think there is a, a desire for all of us as storytellers, an admiration of the performer who's at the center of the room where a thousand people are watching us. Mm-hmm. And that's a natural admiration, and it's, in some ways it's a healthy admiration. But then there's a tendency to want to be that person, you know, to go into the school, to have the whole school looking at us, and we're performing and we're giving them their money's worth. And in that, sometimes in that experience, we get so excited about it that we might forget that the person who's in the trenches is the one who's really making a difference. Right. And I think every every performer, I can't imagine any of the performers that I've talked to wouldn't agree with me in, in that statement, but they might in their own excitement, you know, forget to recognize the trenches. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really appropriate term, trenches. I think people trenches are, are my heroes. Let's get one more person in. We'll squeeze, shoehorn, one more in. The great thing of having a podcast is you could be flexible with the time. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Wallace. Hey, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Hi I'm uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. and um, Say your website, Elizabeth. It's www.starytelling.com. Oh, oh, and push your festival because you're on my show. Go ahead, push it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, on July 19 in Kensington, Maryland, well, actually 18, 19, and 20, in Kensington, Maryland, which is just outside Washington, D.C., through the portal of Skylore, we call it storytelling, we're going to create a hometown family festival to spark curiosity about foreign cultures, astronomy, and space exploration. So what's your question for Jack? Well, one of the things that I uh, noticed uh, in, in, in going to the schools, particularly the aerospace technology school that's here locally, that when I approached the teachers about this and the principal, they said, okay, you know, that's interesting, but they were very science-oriented, okay? Mm-hmm. So I went to a meeting where some of the parents were located, uh, and I, I pushed the festival, and then the parents just grabbed onto it, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that you mentioned earlier that you had difficulties going, you know, trying to, you know, convince the principals and to give you more than 45 minutes of time, et cetera. Right. But I think the real the real customer here mm-hmm. is not the principal or the teacher or the school system. It's the parents, mm-hmm. and that's they're the ones that are willing to find a way to come up with money, you know, right. and that maybe more presentations directly to the PTAs mm-hmm. would would result in uh, the synergy you need to 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 move uh, not you not you personally but we right. all to make these kind of movements in the school system. Right, right. Yeah, you know, again, I really think that there's no general uh, strategy, but that each 
city or school. Uh, you have to sort of uh, size up the situation and then yeah. try to develop a strategy. Certainly, uh, working with PTAs and, and parents is, is, is a wonderful way, very, really excellent. And then, uh, of course, they have to target or, you know, get a few open teachers together who will also support them with whom the work and then you go to the principal that's certainly a really good strategy i think that you have to just use all your energies and your your cunningness when you want to try to get into a school it's a shame we have to be to a certain extent subversive and and use all of these strategies when we're offering something that uh, will benefit everybody uh, that's the shame of the situation, and I wish it were different. I'm sure you wish it, 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 it were different. Uh, but like I said, every city, every town, and every school, you, you just have to uh, size up the school, what's going on, understand the politics within the education system, and then uh, and then try to uh, to get into the school. Right. It's great. I mean, doing a festival is one way if you can get the right people to attend it and to have a workshop that uh, might appeal, you know, to teachers or principal and so on. I Last year uh, uh, in Minneapolis, there was a conference of the uh, state uh, storytellers, and I did a talk, and then, and then later on I did a workshop based on neighborhood uh, bridges. Uh, I didn't realize that the principal, not the principal, the superintendent of a suburb, suburb right out of uh, outside of Minneapolis. Actually, I brought him up front and, and had him do some storytelling and unusual things. And after, and I didn't realize who he was. And lo and behold, he said, "Okay, we want you. We want your program out in the suburbs." And uh, this past winter. We began a neighborhood bridges right outside of uh, Minneapolis, a program outside of Minneapolis. So uh, a festival, a work, you know, workshops at certain places to try to en enlighten uh, people about what you're doing. Those are the things that that can be very effective. Yeah, we're actually Lynn Maroney uh, from Oklahoma. She's uh, going to be our featured teller, and she's going to be doing a workshop which was uh, announced to the Montgomery County Public School System how to teach science using storytelling. Next year, so we already have people signing up from the local schools for that. And they're doing it, you know, in the summertime when there's a little less pressure to actually go back to school. I do want to suggest maybe to the community that you you should maybe be aware and polish up all your Skywar stories because next year is the International Year of Astronomy. And the museums, the science centers, the planetariums are going to be looking for more storytellers possibly in your area that have sky lore under their belt and an understanding awesome. of astronomy as well. So I just came back from the Astronomical Society of the Pacific meeting in St. Louis. Um, Lynn Maroney was teaching uh, the outreach coordinators there how to do uh, science through storytelling, and they're going to need a lot of tellers. So it's important to get those stories um, polished up. Thank you. Those are uh, those are really amazing. So one of the things I heard Jack talking about just a moment ago was this idea in sales. They call it positioning, and positioning is pre-positioning yourself as you're going in into a conversation. 
from a totally different angle. So you're not just cold calling, you're not just walking in the door, you're not just sending them a letter, you're coming in with a relationship that they respect. So earlier in the conversation, I heard Jack Zipes talking about how he had positioned himself with this theater company, mm. and that just changed the relationship. And then later on, talking about how you approach parents, and diff- there's different ways you can get into those populations and position yourself beforehand so that the conversation is completely different than what it would be otherwise. Exactly. But we don't have time for that conversation. So, <laughs> so Jack, I got to ask you, do you have an offer for the audience? Uh, well, uh, the offer would be to come to Minneapolis, visit us, and see what we're doing. Uh, this summer, I'm actually <laughs> this summer, and on uh, July seventh, uh, I'll be doing a two-week uh, summer training course with Maria Asp of the Children's Theater Company uh, at the university for four or five hours of every day, and then we're going to top it off with a national conference that brings in twelve other sites throughout the country. Uh, people from who are using our method. We we had a national grant for three years, and they're coming in to show us what they do, and so that we can share our work. And they're, they're going to be coming to Minneapolis for this national conference at the Children's Theater Company on July 17th, 18th, and 19th. And this is the summer of 2008. For those of you who are listening, right now, 2011, two, two or three weeks, <laughs> and. Are you planning to do this again the next year, or you don't know? Uh, uh, no, the grant. Well, we we may continue at the Children's Theater Company every two years to do some type of national conference, but the grant has run out. In terms of summer teaching, I may or may not. Uh, but uh, Maria Asp and some other professors at the university may continue the summer teaching in uh, in uh, 2009. I don't know my plans at this moment. So that website for that material, if you're interested in finding out more about this program Jack Zipes has been talking about, is uh, www.neighborhoodbridges.org. I want to take a moment to remind everyone listening that I have created an online community because that essentially is what we're talking about. It's talking about the value of having a community that's supporting you. And I know that many of my listeners live in far-flung places in the world where it's hard to connect with other storytellers or storytelling may not be appreciated in your area, or even if it is, I have created an online community where you can participate in discussions around storytelling with kids. Or you can just talk about the show and what your favorite episode is or whatever different angle or aspect you want to talk about. So to go to this online community, you can go to my website, storytellingwithchildren.com, and on the right-hand side, down the bottom, a little link, it says the Storytelling with Children community. Or you can just type in directly http colon slash slash www.storytellingwithchildren, one word, dot n-i-n-g dot com. You're welcome to just be a silent listener, or you're also welcome to participate in the conversation and sign up and um, take part. So, do you have any do you have any final words for us, Jack Zipes? Any final words of wisdom for the international storytelling movement? Uh, not really. I don't think there are ever final words. I just want to thank you very much. Uh, it's been really a great occasion, and uh, I do hope that people respond to your offer. Well. I'm going to ask again because I really want I, I want I want a gem. I want another gem. I want to squeeze more out of this conversation. 
So let me phrase that in a different way then. What could we as storytellers be doing different in the world? What could we as storytellers, how could we be as storytellers be having a bigger impact on the world around us? Well, I, I, as I said before, I think there are numerous storytellers who are uh, doing great work, and I think that having a social uh, commitment, uh, a social conscience, a critical conscience, and trying to work within the framework of building community, I think that's what I hope we, we should all strive for. And I just want to remind my listening audience that storytelling is a group activity. And to be really good storytellers, we have to do it with groups of people over and over and over again. That it's not good enough for us to go into a different school every day and do our stuff. I mean, yeah, we're good, but we could be so much better if we had one group of people that we met with every week for a year because there's something that happens in that feedback and i don't know however you do it in your group whatever system you set up the feedback could just be them looking at you and you seeing that audience over and over and over again there's something that happens that just brings up the level of education in us and in them and so i invite you to enter into storytelling in community and i invite you to enter into storytelling that is based on your listeners' needs, not on your needs. So you're telling stories that your listener needs to hear. That's great, Eric. That's really great. So, Jack, is there um, a local guild that you practice with in Minneapolis? Or Oh, no, 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 just <laughs> neighborhood bridges. That's, <laughs> uh, that takes up all my time. So... Um, What's the latest school that you you worked at with Neighborhood Bridges? What's the name of the school? Uh, Jackson Prep in St. Paul. Jackson Prep in St. Paul? Right. So even though the students at Jackson Prep, in the middle of doing their set, stop in astonishment when they hear me say it, you have been listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children, and I'm Brother Wolf. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening. As my grand-